Hi, good morning, everybody. Like John said, I'm Emily, and um, I'm grateful to be able to do the teaching today. Um, I want to start off the teaching in kind of an unusual way today, and that is with a confession. So here goes. So uh, years ago, there was a woman in my life that I really struggled to love. She just kind of got under my skin. She, uh, she'd done some things in the past that I had a hard time forgiving her for. And I really struggled to be able to like her. In fact, it got to the point that I hated her. I hated the way she looked. I hated the way she talked. I hated the way she interacted with people. And my thoughts about her were not kind. In fact, I said some pretty horrible things to her, things that I would be ashamed for you all to hear. It was very hard for me to love her the way that Jesus does. And that woman is me. You know, I think that sometimes the hardest person in our lives for us to love can be ourselves. We spend a lot of time with ourselves. We know every flaw, every mistake, everything that we've ever done wrong. And sometimes I think that we say things or we think things about ourselves that we would never think about somebody else. Even when I just did that confession right now, I bet some of you are probably thinking, man, Emily's really evil. I can't believe she would treat somebody that way. Right? But then when I said it was about me, you were like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's not so bad. But I think that God expects us to love and show kindness to ourselves just as much as he wants us to show love and kindness to all the people that are around us. So last week, um, Chuck gave a great teaching on what is known as the greatest commandments of Jesus. And he talked about how um, some Pharisees, some religious leaders, they cornered Jesus and they were trying to test him. And so they asked him, okay, Jesus, of all these over 600 different commandments that we have that we're supposed to follow, which one is the greatest? And um, Chuck talked about how Jesus, in just his wise and his loving way, he said in Matthew 22, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Chuck taught us about how to do that um, by putting God above everything else and before everything else by spending time with him every day. And then we see that Jesus goes on to say there's a second commandment that is equally important, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, there are three people in this passage that Jesus was calling us to love. God, others, and ourselves. And so I really think that the more that we are able to love ourselves, the more our capacity to love everybody else around us grows. And so that's our big idea for today. If you want to write this down in your program or you can put this on the app, is that loving our neighbor begins with the one in the mirror. Loving our neighbor begins with the one in the mirror. It begins with loving ourselves. Now, some of you here might be thinking, I have no problem loving myself. In fact, I think I'm, I'm pretty awesome. You know, I think if everybody in the world was a little bit more like me, this world would truly be a better place. You know, that might be true. But uh, you might find as we talk today that there might be some things in your life that you're doing that seem loving to yourself, but in reality are harming you in the long run. 
right? And maybe you truly love yourself perfectly all the time. But even if that's true, I have no doubt that there's someone in your life. Maybe it's a spouse or a parent or a friend or a child who has no clue how to love themselves. And they need you to be able to point them in the right direction on how to do that. And so today I want to talk about what it means to love ourselves, not in a selfish way, but in a way that grows our capacity to be able to love the people around us, all of our neighbors around us. And so to do that, we're going to look at the life of a man in the Bible as our model uh, named David. And um, I believe that David struggled to love himself, but he was able to overcome that struggle with God's help. So if you don't know anything about David, he lived about a thousand years before Jesus in Israel. And as a boy, he was a shepherd, and he was also a very talented musician. And even from a young age, there was a, a priest or a pastor that um, had told him and, and promised him from God that he one day would be the king of Israel, that he was God's chosen king. Well, through some interesting turns of events, David ended up being employed by the current king of Israel named Saul. And so the reason that Saul employed him is uh, Saul was battling some significant mental illness. And he would have these episodes um, that he would get really uh, anxious and upset. And so he called David in to play a harp for him and to calm him down and kind of get past those things. And so David was working here um, for Saul. And David not only was a shepherd and a musician, he also enrolled in the army. And so uh, he was in the army of Israel, and he was a very skilled fighter, and so he was very successful. He won all kinds of victories, became famous and popular, and really even more recognized and regarded than King Saul. And so because of this, Saul became very angry and bitter and jealous toward David. And so one day, um, Saul was there, or sorry, David was there with Saul, just kind of playing his harp and calming him down. And um, we read in 1 Samuel 18, Saul began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did every day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. So out of the blue, David's just minding his own business, and Saul throws a spear at him and tries to kill him. Now, you may have said the words, oh, my boss is going to kill me, but I'm guessing your boss has never actually tried to kill you. Okay, and if they have, then you need to get out of there. Like, put in your two weeks' notice, because that's not a good situation. So you may never have a boss that actually tried to kill you, but you may have been in a situation where someone, for some reason or another, just didn't like you. And you may have felt attacked by that. And maybe when that happened, you asked questions like, what's wrong with me? Well, what did I do wrong? Is it, is it me? Is it something wrong with me? And you kind of personalize it. And I wonder if David maybe had felt that way. So on top of all of his other talents, David was a shepherd, he was a musician, he was in the army, he was also a songwriter. And so David would write these songs that have been now collected in a book of our current Bible called the Psalms. And in the songs, David is very raw and real, and he just shares his true emotions, and he just cries out to God and is honest. And in one particular psalm, Psalm 22, um, it's obvious that David is, is facing some great persecution in his life. And some scholars think it might have been written in response to that episode with Saul um, trying to pin him to the wall. Um, it may have been in another time in his life. We don't know. But I do think that it sums up the way David was feeling at this time. And so in this song, David writes, 
And here I am, a nothing, and earthed him so much, let him help him. Have you ever had a day where you felt like a worm? Like somebody should just step on me and squish me because I'm not worth anything. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid and I would like get in a fight with my sister or my parents and I'd go to my room and I'd shut the door and I would sing this song. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. Anybody ever heard that song before? Isn't that like the stupidest song in the whole world? Why would anybody write that song? But I felt like a worm, right? And maybe for you, maybe you've had a day or a season of your life where you felt like a worm. Maybe you lost your job and someday somebody comes up to you and says, hey man, how's work going? And yet again, you have to tell them about how you screwed up and made a mistake and you lost your job. Or you get that test back that you studied for hours. It's a big fat F and you think, oh, Am I ever going to be smart enough for this? Or maybe you yell at your kids for the hundredth time when you swore you were never going to do it again, and you just feel like a worm, like somebody should just squish you. You know, I think we all have days like that, but I don't think God wants us to live in those unloving thoughts towards ourselves. And I certainly don't think it's what Jesus meant when he said that we should love ourselves. So what do we do when those negative, unloving thoughts just keep coming like a broken record and you want to shut them off, but you can't figure out how to do it? Well, let's, uh, let's look to David's example. So in that psalm, Psalm 22, he's talking about he's a worm, just somebody to be squished and stepped on. And then he stops himself almost mid-sentence and he changes his demeanor and he starts to remind himself of the truth. And he says this in verse 24, talking to himself, he says, God has never let you down, never looked the other way when you were being kicked around. He has never wandered off to do his own thing. He's been right here listening. David reminds himself of who God is and that he'll never let him down. And he begins to praise him. So I I found myself um, experiencing this a few months ago. Um, I was really fighting some negative thoughts. And I, I noticed myself saying things like, man, you're such an idiot. Emily, you're so stupid. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And these thoughts kept coming. And one day I realized, this isn't from God. This is not how he wants me to be thinking. I really need to change the way that I'm thinking. But you know how when you try to stop thinking about something, you just think about it more? Like if I said, don't think about a red balloon. What are you all thinking about? A red balloon, right? But if I said, think about a blue balloon, then you're thinking about that now. So when we are trying to stop those thoughts, we have to replace them with something else. And the something else is truth from God's word, truth about his love for us. And so for me, I decided I was going to pick a a phrase that I knew was true about God, and I was going to use that every time these thoughts came. And so my phrase was, I am immensely loved by God. And so every time I had a thought, you're such an idiot. No, I'm immensely loved by God. And I would think that, or that was so stupid. Why did you do that? No, I'm immensely loved by God. And I would tell myself this over and over, sometimes dozens of times a day, sometimes even out loud. And people probably thought I was crazy, but I'm like, I need to remind myself of this truth. And as I did that, those negative thoughts, they began to fade. And it became easier for me to stop those and to start thinking loving thoughts about myself. So maybe for you, there is a thought, an unloving thought, that's like a broken record in your your mind. Maybe it's, I'm so fat so ugly. I'm so stupid. You know, I mess everything up. I talk too much. I don't talk enough. I just, I messed up too many times. And whatever that broken record thought is, I want to encourage you to find your phrase 
a phrase that is from the truth of the Bible, is the truth of God. And you can write that down if you want. That's your next fill-in in your handout, is to find your phrase. So maybe your phrase is, God loves me, or I am forgiven, or I am God's beautiful creation. And every time those unloving thoughts come, you just say, nope, I am forgiven. God loves me, or whatever your phrase is. Or your phrase might be a verse, a scripture from the Bible that, that you memorize or that you say every day. Um, one of the, my favorite passages in the Bible is another song of David. It's a Psalm 139, and it goes like this. It says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body. He's talking to God here. And you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before this a little bit today. So I want you to use your imagination. Art studio. And you see an artist there, just one man from behind, and he's working on something. And you can tell that this is obviously something very important to him. He's working very meticulously on this uh, sculpture is what he's making. And um, he starts to form it together, and you realize that he's making a person. And you start to see as he adds detail, the, the features of the face begin to come together and the texture in the hair. And he adds these unique sort of markings. And as more and more detail is added, it occurs to you that this is a sculpture of you. Okay, now I want you to imagine that you walk up to this artist in this sculpture and you begin to criticize the sculpture that he has made. You begin to point out every flaw and everything that you think is wrong with it. You ask him how he could possibly think that this would be a work of art. You start ripping off pieces of the sculpture and throwing them on the ground. And then as the artist reaches down and starts to pick up each one of those pieces that you've thrown to the ground, you get your first glimpse of his face and you realize that it's Jesus. Okay, now I want you to open your eyes. Did that not feel completely wrong and disrespectful to tear apart that artist's creation like that and to criticize it? And yet that's exactly what we do when we allow those negative, unloving thoughts into our minds and when we speak them out of our mouths. And that's why it's so important that we fight off these negative thoughts and we fight off these negative, unloving words. And sometimes when you do this, you might feel like you're literally fighting. And in a way, you are, because many of our unloving thoughts that come are from a common source, and that common source is our enemy, Satan. And the Bible says that Satan is an accuser. It calls him the accuser, and that's what he loves to do. He loves to point the finger at you and tell you everything you've done wrong, every mistake you've made, every thought that was wrong, every action that was wrong, all of your insecurities. He wants to point them out to you, and he wants to accuse you. But the Bible also says that we have a weapon against those accusations. And in Ephesians, it talks about how the Bible, God's word, is, is a sword. And that we can use that sword to fight off those accusations. And so I'm going to encourage you today that as those, those negative thoughts come in, that you use your weapon. And you can write that down if you want in your handout. That's your next fill-in. Use your weapon, which is the Bible. Use those scriptures, those words, to remind yourself of the truth. So back when I was fighting a lot of these uh, negative thoughts and, and words about myself, 
and I was, you know, using my phrase, and I was using the Bible, but I kind of got discouraged because it just seemed like the thoughts were just constantly coming in like a machine gun just over and over and over again, and I was getting exhausted, honestly. And uh, one day, I was just kind of spending some time with God, and I felt this prompting to read the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah is just this little book in the Bible. Um, they call it a minor prophet in the Bible. And i got to be honest with you, I don't really make a habit of reading Zechariah. Um, I think the only time I've read it is like it was in a reading plan, and it was just one of the books in the reading plan. But I felt prompted that I should read this book. And so as I'm reading through it, I get to chapter 3, and there's this um, passage that just kind of pops out to me and just resonates with me so much. And then a couple of weeks later, I'm in small group, and this same exact passage comes up in small group. We weren't even talking about the book of Zechariah. It just happened to come up in that night's lesson. And so I was like, okay, God, I get it. You're trying to tell me something here. So this passage in Zechariah chapter 3 um, talks about the author, Zechariah, is explaining about this dream or this vision that he had about a man named Joshua. And Joshua is a priest or like a pastor um, back in Israel. And so he writes in verse 1, he says, Then the angel showed me in my vision Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan was there too, at the angel's right hand, accusing Joshua of many things. When I read this passage, I picture a courtroom. And I picture that Joshua is there on trial. And over here we have the prosecutor, the accuser, which is Satan. And I imagine him just throwing these accusations at Joshua just over and over again. You've done this and you've done that and you've thought this and this is wrong. And just throwing over and over again all of these accusations against Joshua. And he's just left there unable to defend himself. But here's where the passage takes a turn and gets interesting. And that's because another character enters the scene. Because not only does Joshua have an accuser, he also has a defender. And that defender is God. And God steps into the scene, and in verse 2, he says, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. And when I read that, I picture God as the judge. And he's got his gavel, and he's pounding that gavel on his desk, drowning out those accusations of Satan. And he looks at Satan, and he tells him, You shut your mouth, because I have decided this case, and I have declared Joshua innocent, and I am on his side. And he is on your side. And so now, when those negative thoughts come into my mind, and they're just coming at me over and over and over again, I picture God next to me, and he's defending me, and he's telling Satan to shut up. And so I want to encourage you today, if you're struggling with those negative thoughts and you're getting discouraged, find your phrase, use your weapon, which is the, is the Bible, and remember that God is your defender. And that's your next fill-in if you want to write it down. God is your defender. Now here's the thing about unloving thoughts. If we let them keep going and get out of control, they turn into unloving words that come out of our mouth. And if we let those unloving words keep going, they turn into unloving actions that are harmful to ourselves, self-destructive types of actions And I know for me, when I let my negative thoughts kind of get out of control, it turns into unloving behavior for me in different ways. Um, One of the ways is is through food. I'm an emotional eater, so I just kind of eat the way that I'm feeling. And when I'm struggling with these unloving thoughts, I eat whatever I want, wherever I want. 
any time, and I don't care at all about my health. Um, another thing that I do is I push myself to work really hard, to, to make myself try to feel better about myself. And I, I just drive myself into the ground, and I pack my schedule and exhaust myself and don't get enough sleep, and I just push myself. And these things together can be really harmful and destructive to me and cause a lot of physical and emotional problems in my life. Now, maybe for you, um, destructive behavior, unloving behavior looks different. Maybe you uh, go to a, a pill or a bottle over and over again until it starts to destroy your body. Maybe you do risky things. You drive recklessly or you drink excessively. Maybe you are um, destructive in your relationships. Um, Maybe every time somebody comes into your life that's a really good person and influence in your life, you push them away. Or maybe you're in a toxic relationship and you just keep going back and back and back even though you know that it's destroying you. And, you know... David also, who we talked about, he found himself engaging in some self-destructive behavior at a dark point in his life. Um, we talked about Saul and how he, he tried to kill him with the spear. Well, this, this jealousy and anger that Saul had, it just built and it grew until Saul went on an all-out manhunt for David to kill him. And so David was forced to flee for his life. And so he went and he hid um, in a place called Engidai. And I think we have a picture of it here. And you can see it's got all these different caves and things. So it was a great hideout spot. So David went here with some of his men from the army. And they hid in the back of a cave. Well, it turns out that Saul and his men happened to come by the exact same spot. And it just so happened that Saul had to take a bathroom break right in the exact same cave that David was hiding with his men. And so David's men were like, David, this is like your opportunity. You can end this manhunt right here. You can get your revenge. You can kill Saul. It'll all be over with. And I wonder if David maybe thought, I don't know, that would be a little bit risky, right? I could lose my life if I did that. And, I mean, we're in a cave. We're in the back of a cave, so we'd be trapped. There would be no way out. On the other hand, it probably would feel really good if he was able to uh, get revenge and end this manhunt for this guy who, for no reason at all, was against him. So David decides to go for it. He walks out to the front of the cave, and he sees Saul, takes his knife, and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And then just as he's about to take Saul's life, his conscience speaks up, and he realizes that what he's about to do is going to cause just as much harm to himself as it's going to cause to Saul. And so he backs up into the cave, and he calls out to Saul, and he says, My master, my king. And Saul looked back at him, and David fell to his knees, and he bowed in reference and called out, Why do you listen to those who say David is out to get you? This very day, with your own eyes, you have seen that just now in the cave God put you in my hands. And so that day, David allowed Saul to go free. And as we read on in the Bible and we look at the rest of his life, we see that David eventually did become the true rightful king of Israel. And he was called a man after God's own heart. But I wonder if he had engaged in that self-destructive behavior and he had taken Saul's life, would that have happened? Would he have come fully into the call that God had for his life? So how about you? Are you treating yourself in a loving way? Or are you engaging in self-destructive behavior? 
Maybe there's things that you're doing that seem loving to yourself because they feel good at the time, but they cause harm to you in the long term. Um, Maybe you're drinking excessively or you're sleeping with somebody new every night and it feels good at the time, but in the end, it harms you. Or maybe you're working so hard that your mind and body are at their breaking point. Maybe for you, you've gone so far as to physically harm yourself. Or maybe for some of you, you've even thought about taking your life completely. And if that's you, if any of those descriptions fit you, I beg you to love yourself. Not because it's selfish, but because it's the most selfless thing that you can do. When you are able to love yourself, it grows your capacity to love the people around you who are so desperately in need of love. So today, if you're engaging in any kind of self-destructive behavior, look to David's example and first of all, stop. Stop whatever it is you're doing. And if you can't stop on your own, then get some help. Ask someone for help. We have a recovery program, Celebrate Recovery, that meets every Tuesday at 7 at the church office. And they can help you with all kinds of destructive behaviors. Go to counseling. Talk to somebody about it. Go to your small group and tell them, hey, this is what I've been doing and I need some help. I need somebody to keep me accountable and to help me. And especially if you've thought about hurting yourself or you've thought about taking your life, tell somebody today, ask them to help you and take some steps toward loving yourself. So um, I remember a time uh, where I was particularly struggling to love myself. And I remember saying to my husband, honey, I'm not in a good place right now. And I need you, I just need you to know that. And I don't know what to do about it. And he was like, all right, this is what you're going to do. Because you know how guys love to fix things, right? So he's like, you are going to go to counseling. You're going to get a massage. And you're going to go stay the night in a hotel without kids by yourself and get some rest. And as I began to imagine myself doing these things, I was suddenly filled with guilt. Like, how could I use our time and our money to do something like that? Something loving for myself. It just, it felt so wrong. But here's the ironic thing. I can't tell you how many times I've had a friend come up to me and say, oh, I'm struggling with this, and I'm really going through this. And I'm like, you just need to go get some counseling. Like, it'll be so much help. Or go get a massage. I'll watch the kids. One time I watched my friend's kids so she could just go take a nap, right? But when we're, when we're doing those things for ourselves and trying to do loving things, it can feel so selfish. And I think especially for men even, it can be hard to say, I need a break. I need to do something loving for myself. But here's the thing. Even Jesus, who was perfect, who was God incarnate, had to do loving things for himself sometimes and had to take a break. Um, We read in chapter uh, 5 of Luke that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He knew that if he was going to be able to love and care for all those people that came to him, he had to get alone. He had to take some time to rest and recharge and to spend with his father. And that's why this idea of loving the one in the mirror, of loving ourselves is so important. Because when we are able to show grace to ourselves and forgive ourselves, it's so much easier to forgive the people around us. And when we treat ourselves in a way that's kind and loving, it puts us in a much better place to love those people that are around us. And think about the example that it sets for our kids and our grandkids and our nieces and nephews when we love ourselves and we show them how to love themselves too. I mean, imagine if kids grew up knowing what it meant to love themselves. 
Think about how many accidents would be avoided and reckless behaviors and suicides could be avoided if kids genuinely understood what it means to love yourself. And that's why this matters. That's why it's so important. And so I'm going to give you a moment, just between you and God, to reflect and to ask yourself, am I loving myself? Am I thinking loving thoughts? Am I loving myself with my behavior, or is it self-destructive? I want you to take a moment to think about that, and then I want you to think about and ask God, what is one step that I can take to love myself better? Maybe if you're struggling with unloving thoughts, it's finding a phrase, it's finding a verse in the Bible. Um, There's a card in your program that you all got, and it has that passage from Psalm 139. And this might be something that, that you memorize or that you read every morning or put on your desk at work. Or if, if you're struggling with self-destructive behavior, maybe your step to call defend my loving myself, God, what can I do to be able to love myself better? What step can I take? You, you come back and you vanquish my enemy. You come back and you call it my victory.
love me because I'm your daughter. And you always will. And from that day, that discouragement began to lift. And I was able to begin to start to love myself better. And I think some of you today, you need to hear that. You need to hear that God loves you just because you're his son, just because you're his daughter, not because of anything you've done or anything that you haven't done. And today, if you have never asked God to adopt you as his child, I can't think of a more loving thing that you could possibly do for yourself. And so I'm going to give you that opportunity today. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to ask everybody to pray uh, this with me, because here at the JAR, we never pray alone. We always pray together. And if this is something that you mean in your heart, and you really want God to adopt you as his child, I just ask that you would repeat this prayer after me. So if you would, please close your eyes, and let's pray. Let's pray. 